0: A quick warning: there are curse words that are unbeeped in today's episode of the show. If you prefer a beeped version, you can find that at our website, thisamericanlife.org.
1: To fight those massive fires out west, there are these camps, hidden from view. If you were driving by, you might not even know they're there. Like one of the largest fires in California history, the Creek Fire has a base camp for 700 people in the parking lot of a ski resort in Central California, just outside Fresno. Okay. So if you know where to go, the first thing that you see when you pull up to camp is these 20-somethings running back and forth with bright yellow fire hose. Hundreds and hundreds of miles of it. Are you good, man? Their job is to untangle miles of hoses, all day, every day. One of our producers, Meeky Meek, recorded the sound that you're hearing right now and talked to these guys, including R.J. Brown, who's 23, in a dirt street yellow jacket and a face mask with a panda nose and mouth printed on it. The official motto of his employer, the California Conservation Corps, which sends young people all over the state to do this kind of job. Hard work, low pay, miserable conditions, and more.
2: You guys, what?
1: <laughs> Hard work, low pay, miserable conditions, and more. That is the actual motto. What's
3: the best part of your job, and what is the worst part of your job? <laughs> the best part? Uh, I said, no, hang on, I'm going to start with the worst part. Just the worst part is when when they say, uh, when you over here on the uh, walkie-talkie, oh, we got 60,000 layers of hoses coming in. And then once the 60 comes in, they bring in another 30.
2: So when you hear 60,000 hoses coming over the radio, what is going through your head when you hear that?
3: Defeat. (laughs) Like, I want to go home. I'm like, oh, no, no, no. I don't want to do this.
1: The way this job works is this. Trucks come back from the fire line and dump huge piles of jumbled hoses. Five guys entangle them. And then, with each hose, they take one end all right, ready? Everybody grab a corner. And sprint across the parking lot. Each hose is 100 feet long, so it's kind of a long way to go. They lay down one bright yellow hose next to another, next to another, until the whole parking lot is blanketed with tidy yellow hose.
2: What do you do to keep yourself sane when you're rolling hoses?
3: I just be thinking about music in my head that I have already listened to, and it, keeps, and it just keeps me going.
1: They're not allowed to wear headphones on this job. His teammate Corey Rovi has a different strategy to deal with that.
3: I sing it out,
4: and I tell everybody... What
2: song's on your mind lately?
1: Can't Break My Stride. It was like, last night
4: I had the strangest dream. I sailed away to China in a little rowboat to find you. Ain't nobody gonna break my stride. <laughs> <I> <laughs> so that song know. just keeps going You'll in my that head.
1: Song. <laughs> Next step in this process, they wind the hoses up in coils, put them on pallets, wrap them in plastic wrap, and send them to be cleaned. After that... The hoses go out to the fire line again, then back to the hose rolling crews, then back to the place where they're clean, over and over, week after week after week, which is life at a fire camp. You have the same day, over and over and over, until the fire's out. When Mickey visited, the Creek Fire had been going for nearly two months and burned more than 350,000 acres. It's over 500 square miles. Putting out a fire that large is a mammoth task. The base camp that Mickey met RJ and Corey at, it was like a mini city with a makeshift laundromat, a cafeteria, a mechanic shop, sleep trailers with triple bunk beds. Like most people at the camp, Corey and RJ work 16 hour days. And they sleep right on the asphalt, like right next to where they work. In tents they've pitched. They sleep in their uniforms so they can squeeze in a few extra minutes of rest each morning.
2: I was curious, what do you guys what do you guys dream about at night? <laughs>
3: My dream yesterday was about hoses. (laughs) It was about rolling hoses. I was so mad. Like, up. I can't take no breaks, no days off.
1: But the thing about RJ and Corey, they love their jobs. Despite the repetitiveness and exhaustion. Before this, RJ worked retail and at a car wash. Corey had an office job coding. Now it feels like they're part of something important. They're team captains for their crew. And they have this can-do attitude. That it's actually kind of the culture of this camp.
3: Like, I just make sure that the crew's PMA is always at its highest. Tell
2: me, what does that mean?
3: Positive mental attitude. Either me and Ricky will say something like, hey, yeah, just keep the PMA
1: up.
2: Is that, is that a well-known acronym? <laughs> yes. I, I, I had never heard of that acronym. I could use some more PMA in my life right now.
1: With the fire season running longer than ever, it's seven or eight months out of the year now. There's this entire ecosystem of people like RJ and Corey who swoop in and live in fire camps for months all over the West. Today on our program, we meet the people putting these fires out, doing all kinds of jobs you never think of to do it, in this unusual situation where they have to push the same boulder up the same hill every single day. And in the second half of the program, we have a different large group of people who are battling a different large sort of threat, and the stakes could not be higher. They're literally trying to save the world. From am WBEZ Chicago. This is American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Stay with us. <music> Act the extinguishers. So we heard about these fire camps from Lizzie Johnson. She's a reporter at the San Francisco Chronicle and spends most of the year chasing fires around California, covering them, and knows so much about them. She took Miki and one of her other producers, Lily Sullivan, to the fire camp at Creek Fire, and has these stories of the people there and what they do and of daily life in this place. Here's Lizzie.
5: The drive up to the Creek Fire base camp should have been beautiful. This is Ansel Adams country in the High Sierra. But the two-lane highway was lined with trees that looked like charcoal toothpicks. We passed houses where the only things still standing were the chimneys. The local gas station reminded me of a Salvador Dali painting. The letters on the big sign out front had melted, dripping down like icicles. I've been to dozens of fire camps. At the big ones, there's always a stand selling t-shirts, printed with a year and the name of the fire. And you see firefighters wearing them. There's a predictable rhythm to daily life at these camps. They start with a briefing, right at 7 a.m. This is where everyone gets their orders. At the Creek Fire, this happens by the ski lift.
6: Quick roll call, uh, Little T, Groveland, Grayback 17.
5: Over 100 firefighters are here. They looked cold, tired, wearing thick stocking caps and heavy jackets. Hundreds more are listening on the radio. This was day 48 of their fight against the Creek Fire.
6: Plan on your same work assignments today. Uh, we're just really controlling that perimeter and making sure nothing moves on us. And then... There's no
5: way to put out a fire this big. So the best they can do is stop it from growing. The actual mechanics of that feel surprisingly primitive. Hundreds of crews spread out all along the fire's edge, working on their own little speck of land, scraping the ground down to mineral dirt with chainsaws and shovels and bulldozers. So there's nothing left to burn when the wildfire gets there.
6: So be flexible is kind of a key to it. If something changes where we need to move equipment around, that's kind of some of our reasoning for not getting rid of a ton of stuff yet because I know you guys are kind of getting Groundhog Day out there.
5: A lot of the top brass, the incident command team, spoke to the firefighters through two flat-screen TVs set up on a platform. They were at a command post more than an hour away. To me, it sounded like a county fair.
6: All right, thanks, John. Next up, fire behavior, Patty Johnson.
7: Morning. Um, The most... Most growth yesterday was out in this um, Edison Lake area, mainly closer to the South Fork out here than any place else. Um, just for the folks in the field, lots of heavy fuels burning out there, lots of smoke coming out of it. So make sure you take breaks with your um, being in the smoke every day. It's you know probably for some folks, it's 24 hours of smoke that, that they're experiencing out there. Have a good day. All right, thanks
6: Patty for safety.
5: A thick shroud of gray smoke hung over the base camp. The people at the center of the operation are the hotshot crews. They're the most elite of the Wildland firefighters, dispatched to the hottest and the farthest corners of a blaze. In the social hierarchy of fire camps, the hotshot crews are at the top. After the morning briefing, I talked to Pete Rosas in the parking lot. He is a squad boss for a hotshot crew out of L.A. County. His wife's also a Wildland firefighter on a different crew. She drives a water truck called Tender. Pete told me that in the last month, they'd only overlapped at home one day, which was challenging with a two-year-old daughter.
8: We bounce back and forth between my family, her family, and daycare.
7: <laughs>
5: That's a bunch of young guys from his crew sticking their heads out the windows of their Sherbert green bus. It's called a buggy. Chirping Pete. Pete. So they, Pete.
8: They chirp
5: the way. Phoenix is their crew logo. He's the head of Phoenix, and we're just little birds. <laughs> How many times a day do you hear that?
8: Oh man, it's pretty constant.
5: Do you like when they do that?
8: I mean, not that I like it or look forward to it, but I, I think, for me, it tells me okay, the guys are good. They're they're happy right now. So maybe sometimes when I don't hear it. Okay, yeah, what's going on? You know, you guys are up to something.
5: Pete's crew is called Little Tahunga, or Little T for short. At 42, Pete's been on the crew the longest. Some of the younger guys joke that he hatched from an egg at the fire station and keeps them all safe under his wing. Pete's not just their boss. He's a life coach, a mentor, and a therapist, all rolled into one, giving them advice on everything from how to clean their chainsaws to buying their first house. He even reminds them to pay their bills back at home.
8: I feel sometimes like like I am their their dad. The reason it's like that, because I'm with them so much more than I am with my own family. It's like, I know what makes them go off, what doesn't, how to calm them down, how to rile them up when we need them to be.
5: Pete's on the shorter side. He's got skull tattoos on his arms to remind himself the death's part of life. The crew knows him for his cool head. He keeps a book called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck in the side compartment of his truck. He grew up on the east side of L.A., still lives there. As a kid, Pete says he never went camping or hiking, never even visited the mountains. He ended up in this job on a total fluke. Back in the early 2000s, the Forest Service was trying to hire more people of color.
8: I remember it came out in the L.A. Times and it said, hiring 500 firefighters. It was like front page. And uh, so all my buddies came to me, I I was the guy with the car, like, hey, can you take us to this, drop us off, you know, we want to go. I end up taking them, end up staying with them, a couple hours in line. I put an application, so I think like a month and a half later, I get a call from the Stanislaus National Forest offering me uh, an apprenticeship, and the rest is history, I guess. (laughs)
5: Little T is now majority Latino, with a lot of first-generation firefighters like Pete—kids of immigrants. Here's a typical day for the hotshots at camp. After that morning briefing, they load onto their buggies with backpacks crammed with chainsaw fuel, tools, and water. Their packs can weigh up to 50 pounds. They even carry their own stretcher, because if one of them gets hurt, they're on their own. They then drive out on a narrow backcountry road, pull up alongside a mountain, and start hiking into wilderness. It's a brutal 2.8-mile trek to their drop site. No trail, no switchbacks, no signposts. They had to keep going back there for two weeks. Here's one of the rookies on Little T, Zach Hansen.
4: Every day, you're like, we're doing it again, again. We got to go up there. And there is about a foot of ash the whole time on the ground. And your foot's sinking into the ground. And then there's rocks under the ash. So your boots are getting torn up on these big boulders but the ash is probably the biggest part because you're just constantly breathing in ash.
5: They're not issued protective breathing gear, and smoke exposure may be why cancer rates are higher among firefighters.
4: I mean, for me, when I got to the top, I was spitting black. And when you're pushing at a pace hard like that, I was breathing out of my mouth most of the time, which you try not to do, but I was doing it. And so I just, my teeth were black. Everything was black. The whole crew was coughing like they had smoked cigarettes their whole life. I think we accepted it at some point. Like, you know, this is our life now, so we'll just keep going up there.
5: Every single day, they had to return to the same area, a little patch of the creek fire, about six miles long. The flames were threatening to blow out into a new part of the forest. The air was so smoky that planes couldn't get in to do regular water drops. So for most of their 16-hour workday, Little T ripped up their chainsaws and sliced down burning trees. Go! They cleared huge piles of brush and branches with their hands and scraped out a dirt path with what are essentially common gardening tools, rakes, hoes, axes. This path can be up to 30 feet wide. The goal is to give the fire no place to go. Sometimes they literally fight fire with fire, torching trees and brush before the wildfire can get there. They have one of those jobs that's both monotonous and super dangerous. All the while, they have to be on the lookout for falling trees, called snags. They're one of the ways that hotshots get killed in the fields. Little T ran into a lot of snags their first few days on the Creek fire. Here's one of the guys on the crew, Frank Placencia Jr.
3: Your heart's pumping, your adrenaline's pumping, you're scared, you're worried, you're nervous. We yell like snag or tree and we all have to bail out and you can't control it. You could be just walking by a tree and just poop and it falls, you know, big or small. They'll go. When trees are falling, what does that sound like? It's a loud crack. Um, It feels suspenseful because you don't know where it's coming because you're surrounded by trees. If it's a big tree, it's a big boom.
4: It shakes the ground. It'll shake the ground. And so you feel that. It's not, yeah, it's not a good feeling. It's definitely not a good feeling.
5: Again, here's Pete, who's been hot-shotting for more than a decade.
8: There's been trees that have fallen right where I was standing. Literally within seconds of me taking three steps. Like, fuck, that literally could have been it. Okay, I got to clear my mind of this because I, I got the rest of the assignment or the rest of my career thinking about, so I can't do on that. But fuck, man, that was close. That, that could have been it.
5: There's so many ways you can get hurt or die on a wildfire. Firefighters get cut by chainsaws, crushed by boulders, and into car wrecks on dirt roads. Little T was once at a fire where a plane accidentally dumped thousands of gallons of flame retardant on a firefighter from another crew, killing him. And then earlier this season, a squad boss like Pete died while fighting the El Dorado fire in Southern California. The flames burned over him. Afterward, another member of the crew who'd been upset about his death went missing. Suicide and PTSD have risen among wildland firefighters. It feels like dumb luck that Pete hasn't seen a death on his own crew. He's in charge of a bunch of guys in their 20s. A lot of them are pretty new to this job. Pete can't stop worrying even when they're off the fire and get to go home. He says they've gotten injured and even died in car accidents, tired and in a rush to get home after a fire. I've heard a lot of firefighters talk about this as a problem. Pete says his wife Jen sometimes busts him for not being able to leave the guys back at work.
8: Sometimes I, 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 I get this blank stare. And then we're sitting on the couch, right? I don't watch TV, but Jen was watching TV. And she will look at me. Yeah, and right away, her question always is, are you thinking about work? Are you thinking about the guys? Picture yeah.
5: Jen being like, what are you thinking? What are, wanting a romantic answer. And you're like, I'm thinking about Frank. <laughs> yeah.
8: yeah, honestly, that, that does happen. You know, uh, what are they doing right now? Like, oh, I wonder if... Do they need help? Like I don't want them to get hurt. Like I, I want to get back ready.
5: I'm, I'm curious because you spend so much time with these guys. Does it ever feel easier to be more like a dad to them than to your own children, who you don't get to see very often?
8: Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, I, I don't know how to answer that other than yeah. It, it, it is like that. Unfortunately, I guess. You no, know, because uh. I do see sometimes a difference in how I treat everybody in my family and how I treat these guys sometimes. More understanding and more patient. We're literally stuck with each other for seven, eight months out of the year. If the guys get in an argument or are not seen eye to eye, you can't just walk away. You have to deal with it at the moment or it could potentially cost us our lives. With the family, you walk away and you'll come back a day later or whatever it be. With us, you, you can't. So I'm aware that it might be unfair. I'm 100% aware of that.
5: Long fire seasons are now so consistent that there's a whole army of private contractors that chases these fires across California too. It's a multi-million dollar industry. Their jobs are to make life a little easier for the people out on the fire line. At the Creek Fire, most of these contractors are set up in the main parking lot of the ski resort, which is the equivalent of downtown here. There's hot showers, the sleep trailers. They're highly sought after. And an industrial kitchen that packs up these brown paper bag lunches, called the 5,000-calorie meal. The mobile laundromat is in a white trailer in the back of the parking lot, hooked up to a water tank. It has 16 washers and dryers going all the time.
9: Is this one dirty too? Oh
3: yeah. Yeah. Okay,
5: cool. Jen Wolf is the person in charge of washing everyone's filthy laundry. She says Little T always texts her the second they get off the mountain, just so they can jump to the front of the line as soon as they roll back into camp.
9: Put a little detergent in there. There we go. (laughs) How many loads of laundry do you do in a day? About 460. Yeah, could be more. We're either working or sleeping, basically. <laughs> there's no real downtime.
5: Jen wears blue latex gloves so she doesn't pick up poison oak. Does it smell
9: really bad when it comes in? Um, You know, it can. Uh, some of these teams, they, what's called spike out. Spiking out means camping out in a remote spot near the fire line. And they spike out there for sometimes two weeks. And there's no laundry service, no shower. And yeah, their socks can... Stand on their own sometimes.
5: <laughs> one of the guys who works for her was a lot less diplomatic.
9: So if you,
6: are, if you go to this grocery store, you buy 12 eggs, you boil them, and now you leave them out for a month, that's what some of these clothes smell like.
5: The only snafu Jen's had here at camp was a sock mix-up. She accidentally put one firefighter's expensive wool socks in another guy's bag.
9: And we were <laughs> we were able to unite the socks with the person. Sorry. that's so funny? <laughs> it just is. <laughs> well, he was upset about his socks, but we got him back to him, so all is good. <laughs> How long did the sock saga last? Um, I think a couple of days. So, yeah, it was very high stress. It's socks, but you know what? That, I'm telling you, that is the comforts. They were
5: his socks, and he wanted them back. The Creek is the fourth fire camp Jen's worked at this year. She says the smoke at each of them smells really different. Here is like a campfire from all the smoldering pine trees. But in more populated areas, where buildings and houses burn, the smoke smells synthetic and greasy. It stings your lungs. That reminded me of the fires I saw in Wine Country in 2017. More than 5,000 houses and buildings burned down. The smoke smelled awful because you were breathing in people's lives. Kaylee Rawls has one of the most important jobs in the camp. She works in a trailer printing the maps and action plans for all the teams. The printers run 24 hours a day, and Kaylee is the only person on her 12-hour shift, so she can't leave the trailer. People are constantly running in and out, they never have time to chat, which means that this person who everyone relies on is the loneliest person I met at camp. The most exciting drama that had happened the week I was there was a black bear busting into a giant grease vat from the kitchen. The cook told me the bear had chugged about 100 gallons of grease. But as usual, that news hadn't reached Kaylee yet. Have you
7: seen the bear? The bear? It's been eating the bacon grease. No way! I've never even heard of this. I'm like in the dark over here. I'm not even kidding. No one tells me anything. Like any time I get any like juicy info, I'm like, no way. Like no one talks to me. (laughs) I'm all alone over here.
5: Kaylee says the only time she leaves her trailer called Fire Dog, is to go out to the porta potty She's so isolated that she hasn't even figured out how to read the map she's printing. They're topographic and color-coded to show where the fire's the hottest, with symbols for all the different teams. At this point, the outline of the fire perimeter kind of looks like a Sasquatch with its front leg kicked out. Kaylee's 20. She wears a hoodie and has perfect makeup. She recently broke up with her longtime boyfriend. But she explained to one of my producers, Lily Sullivan, that there's a rule at camp. So like, basically
7: you can't be macking on these boys and like doing that. That's our policy. It's an actual policy. It's an actual policy. Like we sign it. We have to keep it like professional. Yeah, you have a job to do. Yeah, exactly. We have a job to do. But like, yeah, the view is great, you know? (laughs) Not necessarily here, but (laughs) every fire is different. You don't think there are other cute people here? Mm, I'm trying to think No. Fed fires usually don't
5: have cute people, tend to be older and yeah. Fed fires, meaning fire camps run by the U.S. Forest Service. But camps run by the state's agency, CAL FIRE?
7: Like CAL FIREs? That's where it's at. That's where it's at. CAL FIREs have cute boys. Say so yeah, I get a call and. She says, I'm sending you here. It's going to be a cow fire. I'm like, sweet. Every girl on our team would be like, awesome. Because what's the difference? The cow fire, I don't know what it is, but there's always like younger. And even when they're not, I don't know if it's because they have like nice uniforms and they have to be really like clean like. It's nicer all around. Not only because there's cute boys, but because you get better food it's like if you're gonna stay at this five star hotel compared to this three star type thing. So, CAL FIRE is
5: like the five star hotel, FED FIRE is like three. Kaylee doesn't actually sleep at the camp. Her company rented her a cabin about 30 minutes away. But it's the worst part of the job. It's creepy, she says. The curtains on her bedroom windows are see through. Did you get some sleep
9: last night? I was like, yeah.
7: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was on FaceTime with my mom all night. All night? Like, we set it up, and then we go to bed. <laughs> Wait, so you really you put your mom on FaceTime, and you guys go to bed? Like, you sleep like that? Yeah. Like, we're usually not in creepy places, but this just happened to be creepy. <laughs> when I get back to the cabin, I FaceTime her, and we'll talk all night, and then I'm like, okay, like, let's set up our phones. And she's like, okay, so we literally fall asleep. Like, if I open my eyes, I can look at my phone and see her. And, like, I just wake up all throughout the night and, like, look to see if she's still there. Does she sleep with the light on so that you can see her? No, I sleep with the light on. and (laughs) So she can see me because I feel like there's something there. And then my alarm goes off in the morning. She's like, Kaylee, wake up.
5: (laughs) Yeah. Kaylee is thinking about moving out of her cabin and into a tent at the camp, just so she doesn't have to feel so alone. It can be weirdly easy to work on these wildfires and not think about the big picture at all. This year was a turning point, the combination of climate change, drought, dead and diseased trees, and more housing built in high-risk places. California saw six of the state's biggest fires in modern history. For the first time, firefighters began using the term gigafire to describe a million acres burning. We still approach wildfires with a very manifest destiny type of attitude, believing that with enough people and grit, there's no fire we can't conquer. But we've spent four months and almost $200 million on the Creek Fire, and it's still not out. The Creek Fire destroyed 850 homes and businesses. Most of them were in little mountain towns where nothing will be ever totally normal again, not even the ground. After a big fire, the dirt's toxic from melted insulation and all the other synthetic stuff inside a home when it burns down. And with the forest gutted, you can suddenly see for miles. I talked to a bulldozer operator named Dean Mullis, who goes by Woody. He got a glimpse of this and was still thinking about it a few weeks after he'd gone home. On his very first shift on the Creek Fire, he was sent out to protect a neighborhood the fire hadn't reached yet. It was on Crestman Road. He'd never been here before.
6: All of a sudden, like, there's just fire. You don't exactly know where to go.
5: So he started pushing away anything that might cause the houses to catch fire.
6: I was basically in the bulldozer pushing cars that were on fire, playground sets, decks, you know, like wooden decks off the back of a house, brush, trees, taking that fuel away from those houses.
5: He worked through the night, but most of the homes didn't survive.
6: And we drive through there and we go, man, why'd that one survive and the other one didn't? I don't know.
5: Woody's a dozer operator for the state's CAL FIRE agency. Unlike Hotshot crews, he spends most of his time alone moving huge piles of dirt in his dozer, scraping fuel breaks to get ahead of the flames. He jokes that the stereotype of a bulldozer operator is someone who's kind of salty and will push back against orders they don't agree with. Woody's bald, with piercing blue eyes. He says he hates how big fire camps like the one at the creek have become. Once upon a time, when Woody first started, a fire camp was just a few booths in a lot where you went to pick up your paycheck or radio. You know, it's been a really long fire season. How are you feeling at this point?
6: I, I don't, I, I'm not going to, I don't like it. I don't like it. I mean, it's 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 too much. It's just devastation. You know, you see all the comments on social media, the new norm, California. It sucks. I don't want to be running the bulldozer in December in Southern California protecting structures. I mean, I will. It's my job. Of course I will. But I care for people a lot. and. I don't enjoy seeing houses burn. Nobody wants to do that. People want to go to the—it's the holidays. supposed to be staring at Ralphie from Christmas Story, not staring at a wildfire, you know?
5: I first met Woody in 2018 at another California fire, the Ferguson. It happened north of here. That year, at least six firefighters died. Two of them were dozer operators and included Woody's best friend from childhood. His name is Brayden Varney, And he is the one who got Woody into firefighting.
6: It was dark. It was extremely steep. And uh, his bulldozer slid off the side of a road. And he perished when it slid. It tumbled down the mountain.
5: It took two days for firefighters to retrieve Brayden's body. They draped an American flag over his remains and carried him out of the canyon. Now, Woody has Brayden's job at their local fire station in Mariposa. He sees himself as part of the lineage of dozer operators. One that started with Braden's dad, who held the spot until he died of cancer from the job.
6: Braden and I always wanted to be partners on the bulldozers. Braden will always be on my mind. Braden will always be with me on the fire lines in the morning, drinking coffee out of a plastic water bottle that's been cut in half out of a homemade coffee pot. Do
5: you ever think about how much longer you can or want to do this job for? you counting down the days until retirement?
6: (laughs) I'm not one of those guys yet. I still have 19 years left.
5: You have 19 years left?
6: Yeah, so I started late. So, no, 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 no. I have 18 years left.
5: Eight? That's still a lot of years.
6: Well, the retirement formula changed. They used to retire at 50. Now they retire us at 57.
5: Do you think you can make it until you're 57?
6: I mean, if you look at a billboard, statistic billboard, if I don't catch cancer, I'm doing pretty good.
5: Woody, eight, 18 years. Can you imagine what the fire season will be like in eighteen years? I don't think anything will be left. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, uh, it very I well might be that way.
6: I don't know. I mean, that, that brush grows back. Yeah. So, I don't. I don't know. You know, it, it's a crazy job sometimes.
4: Mm-hmm.
5: I met up with the Little T Hotshots again on their very last night at camp. They were about to get to go home for two days. They stood out from the rest of the scraggly and bearded dirty men in the parking lot. Everyone on Little T was showered, clean-shaven. It's a crew tradition. In one of the buggies, the guys were watching a Dodgers game on a Little
4: TV.
5: They looked relaxed and happy, even though they'd just heard the fire season might get extended another two months into January. That's something that would have been hard to imagine a few years ago. Again, here's Zach and Brink. Like a lot of the crew, they're contractors who get laid off at the end of the season. What do you think about the season possibly going all the way until January?
4: This is so we were all excited. We were all excited. Yeah, it was fun. When they asked, everybody on this crew's hand shot
3: up. How do you just keep going on and on and on? Each other. Like, honestly, each other. Like, each other. The synergy, the family, dynamics.
4: You guys are all
5: positive attitude. Ooh, oh, that's, yeah. mandatory. that's mandatory. That's mandatory. You
3: cannot have a negative attitude yeah, and get away with
4: attitude. it here. <laughs> I would say this job's probably impossible if you don't have a good attitude.
5: But when you're having a really bad day what do you no tell
4: yourself? Days, no bad days. <laughs> it sounds so weird, I, t- I totally get why it sounds weird, but that's like a big thing that we have is like, no bad days on the worst day is not that bad. <laughs> it's
3: not
8: What we always say is like, it can always be worse. Could it could be hotter, it could yeah. be uh, a lot steeper. colder, it could be way steeper. The
5: truth has, is, a lot of people don't last more than a few years at this job. The adrenaline high eventually wears off, and they move on to other jobs, jobs that are easier on their families. One of the hardest parts of hotshotting is just how much they're on the road. More of their life is spent out at fires than at home. This season, Little T has been on back-to-back assignments since June. Nevada, Utah, Arizona, all up and down California. The way their assignments work is they go out for 14 or 21 days at a time, then only get two days off before shipping out again. With all the overtime, it's good money. One of the chainsaw guys on the crew said he'd make $70,000 after taxes. So some of them don't really work during the off-season. While they're out fighting fires, life goes on without them. They're reminded of this in a very literal way. They often go without cell service for days. And then the second they get back in range, they're bombarded by everything they've missed. Joel Gonzalez is one of the captains on Little T.
0: Some guys, over 100 messages of, <laughs> a day. You
5: thinking, you're thinking of something, you're
7: thinking of an example. I'm, I'm
0: thinking of someone who's in the truck right now.
7: <laughs> What's the situation?
0: This is a busy year for us, and she doesn't understand that one of my guys, uh, he's just he just can't be on his phone all the time, you know? And then when he does get service, <laughs> he finds out how many times uh, she's been messaging him. So,
9: it's like, how many?
0: On the low end, maybe like in the in the 20s, in the high ends, maybe over 100.
7: <laughs> Just like, call me, call me. Where are you? What the fuck? Yeah. What's going on? You'll talk to me about it?
0: No. Nah. <laughs> you won't. I won't throw him in the
8: bus. <laughs> I get a lot, Pete. How come women don't understand what we do? Why doesn't she get it?
5: Again, here's Pete, the squad boss who gets chirped at by the crew. He says they're constantly asking him for relationship advice. He keeps it pretty simple. Sit down and talk. Put yourself in her shoes. But the problem is, they never actually have time to use it.
8: I could be telling him that today, this morning, but then he never makes it home to be able to do that. And now it just turns into worse and worse and worse. And unfortunately, it doesn't work. It's really hard to understand or even sometimes believe that you're gone so long or believe that you're on a fire. Why didn't you have service? You know, why didn't you have service? I just talked to you a minute ago. Well, yeah, I know I was hiking and I had service for one second and now it's gone. And now they don't hear from you again for three, four days. You can't explain that, you know?
5: There have already been a couple breakups this season. Pete says his first marriage ended in divorce because he was gone so much. Unlike the seasonal guys, he's year-round. He was on a fire when his son was born, and this season missed his daughter's birthday. Pete often scrolls through photos of them on his cell phone.
10: Get
8: a picture of my boy.
5: He showed me one of his son, now 11, competing at his swim meet. Was that cool getting to be at his meet?
8: Oh, yeah. Well, I didn't make it to this one. This was a picture they sent me, but I've been to some of his meets. Not too many, but yeah, it's fun. It's definitely fun watching them.
5: Are, are they always very forgiving of you being gone, not being there for the big things in their life?
8: I like to say, yeah, because I think they don't know any different. They think it's the norm. You know, like, oh, dad's always gone working. I think, that's morning, thank you.
5: One of the guys from his crew stopped by his truck. This happened all the time while I was talking to him.
8: Okay, I'm sorry. So, yeah, so they brought me my breakfast. They brought me my lunch. It's like the first thing on their plate. Okay, we gotta take care of, of Pete, and then we'll do our thing. It, it becomes to where you become very, like, catered to. Well, this is not normal. In real life, it's not like that. I mean, your kids are gonna talk back. Your wife is gonna want different things, Different. it's gonna be a different type of reaction. And somebody has been doing this so long, somebody like myself and a lot of these other guys, You don't want to deal with that because it's a lot easier here. It's a lot easier.
5: Pete's the perfect worker for these long fire seasons. He loves his job. And when I asked him if the relentlessness ever gets to him, he told me no. The more fire, the better. The more I work, the more I don't have to think about real life.
1: Lizzie Johnson of the San Francisco Chronicle. She's got a book about the Paradise Fire that's coming out that you can pre-order online. The Creek Fire, after burning for nearly four months, is right now about 96% contained. Crews expect to get it to 100% at the end of this month or the start of the year. One of the hot shots from Little T, Matthew Hawkes, just came out with an album this month under the name Unholy Smokes. This song is about constantly being on the road.
4: The great big
8: Now, so I we meet again some other day. Here I go again
2: Wandering,
1: my friend. I knew that coming up a scientist is out snowboarding gets a call to come save the world. We move from hot shots to cold shots. In a minute from Chicago Bubble Radio when our program continues. It's This American Life, Myra Glass. Today's program, Boulder v. Hill. Stories of people trying to save the world by teaming up together and getting in there every day, doing the same things over and over, like Sisyphus pushing his rock up the slope again and again till the job gets done. We have arrived at Act 2 of our program. In this act, we move from people who are saving us from something very large to people saving us from something tiny. Act 2, the other extinguishers, so uh, the people in this act have been working at a task, some of them for years. And this has been in the news in just the last few weeks. They have actually succeeded. It looks like they got their boulder up to the top of the hill. David Kestenbaum spoke with four scientists who have been working on a coronavirus vaccine, one of the ones that was just shown to be effective. David was a scientist in his early career. He worked at Fermilab. And from the coverage, he could not understand what exactly they had done in any detail. And he wanted to know that and who these people were and especially how does it feel to have helped make a thing that could save so many lives, fix a global economy, get life back to normal again for
0: everybody. Here's David. I'm going to tell you the story of some of the people who made this one tiny thing. It's a key thing that's in at least five of the vaccines that are being tested. If you get the vaccine shot in the coming months, this thing will probably be injected into your body and it could save your life. And the story of all this You could start at all sorts of places. I'm going to begin here, in China. I'm from a
11: very small village around the east coast. Uh, It's Shandong province, and uh, both my parents are farmers.
0: This is Nian Shuang Wang. His way into science was playing outside, noticing bugs and locusts, scorpions. Just got him curious about stuff.
11: Yeah, why we can sing, Why, like, uh, we need to eat food? Yeah, like those things, I'm curious about all those.
0: It's funny for me, it was when I was in like 10th grade, I think, I Mm. learned about Newton's equation for gravity, and I learned that that explained both the orbits of the planets and also what happened when you dropped a ball, and I was like, I'm in, that's amazing, there's an equation that describes both of those perfectly, it was the rules behind the thing, it was the same thing, you
11: know? Yeah, those are really beautiful stuff,
0: yeah. When I first emailed Nianchuang, he was super excited to talk. Said no one had really interviewed him about all that he had done. Nianchuang got himself a scholarship to one of the top universities. And the thing he found himself gravitating toward is this field called structural biology, which I think favors a particular kind of person. You're basically trying to figure out what molecules look like, where all the atoms are, so you can tell how something works, or, if it's a virus, how to fight it. And the thing is, People work for years trying to figure out the structure of one tiny molecule. The traditional way of doing it is that you get a bunch of those molecules and try to get them to lay out in a neat repeating pattern. Then you hit them with these powerful x-rays, which give you just this pattern of dots. Then you have to apply these mathematical algorithms. And sometimes it's just not solvable. It really is like pushing a boulder to the top of a hill. It rolls down over and over. Nian Chuang was good at it, though. For his thesis, he worked out the structure of part of a coronavirus. Not this coronavirus, this was years ago. It was a coronavirus that was making the news back then, the MERS coronavirus, because it caused Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. After that, he needed a job. So he reached out to a guy who was also looking into MERS, Jason McClellan, at Dartmouth. How would your friends describe you? Wow.
2: I have no idea. Fun, good to hang out with likes having a beer or two. (laughs) guy who's gonna save the world. No, I don't think that was on anyone's radar.
0: Nian Shuang came over to the States to work with Jason and his team. This was 2014, six years before the pandemic. They wanted to make a vaccine for MERS. And one of the things they were trying to figure out back then that would end up being key for the vaccine we have today was how to manufacture copies of the tiny spikes that were all over the surface of the MERS coronavirus. The spikes are why they're called coronaviruses. The viruses have a corona, a wreath of these little spikes sticking out all over it. The spike is the part that sticks to your cells when it gets in your body, lets the virus break into your cells and start replicating. It's the scary part of the thing in a way. If they could make just the spikes without a deadly virus attached to them, maybe they could train your immune system to recognize the virus and fight it. But it turned out to be damn hard to make the spikes in the lab. Basically, you stick the genetic code for the spike into some cells. What are the cells?
2: Uh, We use two, either Cho cells, Chinese hamster ovary cells, or uh, HEK293 cells. Which are what? The Human embryonic kidney cells.
0: I see. I don't know why I wanted to know all this, except that this is the kind of knowledge that is going to save our asses. The problem was, when they got the genetic code for the spikes into those cells... They did start spitting out spikes, but the cells weren't making a lot of them. And the spikes on their own were unstable. They kept changing into the wrong shape. Nianchuan spent a long time trying to stabilize them. Add something, tweak the genetic code, try again, again. There's a tedium to it. Each try takes a while. Around two or three weeks. Two or three weeks. So you would start it like March 1st. By the third week in March, you'd be done with that test, and most of the time it fails. Yes. And then you start again, and then you don't know for another three weeks if that new thing works.
11: Yes, yes. But we can do like 10 at the same time, or even more, 20.
0: Oh, so you do 20 of them at the same time. Oh, yeah. Mm. We did a lot, actually. And every time you tried this, in your mind, are you like, oh, this time it's going to work?
11: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm very confident sometimes. I think it's going to work. If it won't work, I will drop this project. Then, ah, uh, Yuli, I got disappointed out.
0: It's funny that you're so optimistic because most of the time it fails, right? It just keeps failing and failing.
11: Yeah, that that's kind of the life at the
0: beginning. This kind of lab work, it's kind of like cooking, but for the fussiest restaurant ever. Lots of little precise steps. You mix the stuff up in a flask, set it on this little platform which gently swirls the stuff in it, keep the whole thing at 37 degrees Celsius, leave it overnight. So you're constantly having to be at the lab at a certain time to do the next step. His wife told him, you always say it'll be five minutes, but it's hours. They tried so many different things, scouring the scientific literature for different ideas, modifying them. The thing that finally worked was changing the genetic code for the spike so it would swap in two proline amino acids. They helped hold the spike in its spike form, kept it from changing shape. Also, the cells were spitting out way more spikes, 50 times more.
2: Uh, the day it worked was really exciting because we, Neon who had been doing all of this work. It, it's a lot of trial and error. You're basically just failing until it works. And finally, he got one. We're like, wow, that, that looks fantastic. We knew we had something then.
0: When they vaccinated mice, gave them a shot containing these MERS coronavirus spikes, the mice's little immune systems developed antibodies, lots of them. It looked really promising, like you might be able to make a really good vaccine against the MERS coronavirus. This was basically the roadmap for the vaccine we were all gonna need when the pandemic started. But the major scientific journals were not interested in publishing it.
11: We tried, totally tried six different journals and was rejected five times.
0: Wow. That's kind of amazing looking back now.
11: Yeah, if we look back. Yeah. Yeah. I, I I was I was getting sad after three rejection, four rejection, five rejection.
0: Yeah. He told me he fell into a real depression. No one seemed to see the value of their work. He saw a therapist who pointed out all he had accomplished and suggested that he might feel proud instead of sad. It didn't really help. This was 2017. The pandemic was three years away. The fact that they had trouble getting it published, to me, it doesn't mean the scientific journal editors are idiots. Back then, most people thought the next pandemic was going to be some new form of influenza, not a coronavirus. Which, of course, is the argument for funding lots of basic research. Sometimes you don't know what thing is going to be important. When the current pandemic began, Jason McClellan had moved his lab from Dartmouth to the University of Texas at Austin. Nianchong had gone with him. Jason told me one day in January, January 6th, he was in Utah snowboarding, and he got a call from the deputy director of the Vaccine Research Center at the National Institutes of Health, Barney Graham. Graham had been working with him on all the MERS coronavirus stuff, and he was calling about some pneumonia-like illness in Wuhan, China. The local health authority was reporting forty-one cases.
2: He let me know he was talking with the US C D C and um, they, they wanted to quickly make a vaccine candidate and it looked like it was a beta coronavirus and, and he wanted to know are, are are we game? Are we gonna can we can we help out, try to rapidly determine the structure of the spike and get the vaccine made and and You
0: said you said I I'm busy, I'm snowboarding.
2: Yeah, yeah, I was actually, I was getting some boots heat molded. So I had 10 minutes to talk to him uh, while they were heat molding to my feet. But I immediately uh, WhatsApped my grad student, Daniel Rapp, and told him, um, you know, we're going to race. We've got to move quickly on this. Let's get prepared.
0: It's worth pointing out, they were running full steam at this in January. This is before Wuhan went into lockdown, before that giant hospital got built. The whole thing was barely in the news. And life here was totally normal. So they are all going to the office to work frantically on this thing, while all around them, people are going to restaurants, and church, kids are in school. The thing they were gonna try to help make is called an mRNA vaccine. Instead of giving people shots filled with coronavirus spikes, you inject people with the genetic code for making the spikes. The code is wrapped in this little package, and once it gets injected into your body, it goes into your cells, and then your cells start making the spikes. Loads of them which on their own are harmless. But your immune system sees these foreign things and learns to fight it, which should hopefully protect you if the real virus comes along. This is the genius of vaccines. We're not that good at making drugs against viruses. But you know what's really good at fighting them? Our immune system. If you just show it the right piece of the virus, it often figures out how to fight it off. It's like the answer, we all have it inside us. The big thing they had to work out for the vaccine was what part of the genetic sequence for the coronavirus were they going to stick in the vaccine to make the spikes? And how are they going to alter that code so that when the spike was created, it would be stable and not twist around? Five days after Jason got that phone call, Chinese researchers posted the genetic code for the new coronavirus online so teams around the world could look at it. Jason and the others started going through it right away. So how long did it take? So you get the sequence, then how long until you're like, This is the thing we want in the vaccine. Oh,
2: an hour, maybe. Really? It was probably within 10 minutes. I mean, as soon as you did the sequence
0: alignment, you just put them in, like, yeah. That's because the spike on this coronavirus that would cause the pandemic, it was very, very similar to the one on the MERS coronavirus, the one they had been studying. It's often noted that these vaccines came together really quickly. But it seems like the reason they came together really quickly is because of all this work that went on for years before.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. And it, it, yeah, it definitely is just-
0: It's not like it just happened in 30 days. Like it happened yeah, in 10 I years. I saw
2: a nice graphic online showing that if SARS-CoV-2 had emerged even 10 years ago, we'd be nowhere this far along to, to having a vaccine.
0: They sent the genetic sequence off to a company that they'd been communicating with for a while called Moderna. Moderna, like a bunch of other scientists and other companies, have been working for years on how to even make an mRNA vaccine, which is a whole other story. Anyway, a few weeks later, they had one ready for testing.
12: I mean, this is like the first vaccine to potentially be tested in humans for what was then a burgeoning pandemic.
0: This is Kismikia Corbett, a viral immunologist at the NIH who'd been working with Jason and Yan Shuang and everyone else. She was there when the package arrived from Moderna. And just a note about Kismikia. She told me that she was one of those kids who won all the science fairs, couldn't leave a math problem unsolved. And also, when the Nobel Prizes were announced, she would write the speeches she would imagine they would deliver and read them out loud, pretending to deliver them in a very dramatic way, with tears, as if they were the Oscars or something. Anyway, she was the one who went to get the box of the first vaccines when they arrived.
12: It came, and I, like, for this is the first time anything came from Moderna where I had to, like, show my ID, and I remember, like, the loading dock, people couldn't even, like, bring the box up to me. I had to, like, meet the driver downstairs. I don't even think it came on a plane. I actually think that they had it driven from Boston to Bethesda.
0: When you got that box, like, what did you think?
12: I... I remember asking the guy, the loading dog, to take a picture and he was like, I can't. <laughs> can you take a I was like, can you take a picture of me with this fox? And he's like, Oh no, I I can't do that.
0: Cause he was too busy?
12: I mean, that's because it's not his job. <laughs> I'm just this, you know, nerdy scientist about to vaccinate some, you know, 200, 250 mice with a vaccine. It's like, I mean, he didn't, I don't, neither of us really understood the gravity.
0: This was in February. Miki remembers at some point going to see her family, sitting down on her mom's bed and kind of briefing everyone. I think things might really change soon. I think the virus is about to be a big problem. I talked to all the researchers about what it was like in this period, making and testing a vaccine they hoped would work, but not knowing. Meanwhile, more and more of the world was shutting down. More people getting sick and dying. Kizmikia told me she used to look at the daily numbers for the world and then had to stop. It wasn't healthy. Barney Graham is Kizmikia's boss. He's the deputy director of the Vaccine Research Center at the NIH and the guy who'd called Jason while he was snowboarding. He'd worked with them on all this stuff. The most senior member of the group. It weighed on him, though he didn't always recognize it. He says he's not always in touch with his feelings. We talked in the evening. He was at home, where he'd been for months, sitting in front of a bookcase, little bust of Benjamin Franklin on it. He seemed tired. Making the vaccine took so many steps, so many decisions.
10: Most of the time, you just, uh, you know, grind through the day and try to make the best decisions you can and, and keep everybody moving and There's also a sequence, you know, things have to happen in a certain order or you get blocked. And so just keeping things moving takes up most of my attention most of the time. You know, maybe my wife could say something.
0: And then his wife, who was in the room while we were talking, her name is Cynthia, jumped in.
12: Well, I, She's
0: a psychiatrist and at a couple points had been chiming in, in a very sweet way, to sort of explain her husband's calm exterior. She said, you're forgetting the story which well, she started to tell. To
12: think he, he came out of his office and he was clearly distracted and upset. And of course, if you want to know what's going on with Barney, you have to ask him and you have to not let him off the hook until he tells you. And so I continued to just probe. And he, he said, what if I selected
10: the wrong sequence? Because we had selected a sequence right initially, but the question was, um,
12: was it the right one?
10: Usually we spend, we spend months or even years experimenting to decide this is the best one to use.
12: He was worried about the time that would be wasted in the development of the vaccine itself. And how many people would die? How many children would be left without parents? You know, how many old people would not get to see their grandchildren grow up? I mean, he was just, thinking about all of the terrible consequences, if this had been the wrong choice. It's
10: it's just, you know, like I said, I I tend to be a little obsessive. And, you know, you just can't get certain ideas or thought patterns out of your head until you find a, a resolution.
0: Clinical trials began on March 16th, which is pretty incredible. This is right around the time when businesses were just deciding it would be safer to work from home. Shots were eventually given to tens of thousands of people. And then the wait began, to see if it worked. Meanwhile, the coronavirus kept spreading in the U.S. Or, as the president called it, the Kung flu and the China virus. Here's Nian Shuang.
11: I'm from China, you know. I do have some some, some feeling that... Yeah, the president should not say that to to my home country. I'm pretty angry about that. I think that it makes no sense.
0: It was offensive, but it also just struck him as dumb. There were so many things the president needed to be doing to tame the pandemic. Why was he wasting his time with this? And then, maybe you remember this. There was a story in the news back then about how the FBI was looking into whether Chinese spies— working through the consulate in Houston, had tried to steal vaccine research. The FBI was going to be questioning people at the University of Texas. One story included Nian Shuang's name as someone who worked there from China. Friends told him to get a lawyer. He says he and his wife looked into whether they could leave the country if they needed to. In the end, no one came to question him, but it was unnerving. The moment when all these researchers learned that their vaccine was going to work was a few weeks ago, when Pfizer announced that its vaccine was more than 90% effective. Pfizer had started its phase 3 clinical trials on the same day as them, but Pfizer got its results first. Pfizer had used in its vaccine the thing this team had come up with. The coronavirus spike stabilized the way they had figured out. Pfizer had licensed it from them. So if the Pfizer vaccine worked, they figured theirs would too. Barney Graham got a call before the results went public.
10: I've been right here in my office for 10 months. So I was in my office and it was in the evening, uh, late evening. And apparently their data and safety monitoring board had met earlier in the day and uh, they were going to put out a press release the next day on Monday. And I got off the phone and. Um, I went over and sheepishly told my wife and my son, who was visiting at the time, that, um, you know, it it looks like it's gonna work. And and that just kind of um, released a lot of emotion, I think, that I'd been holding back for the last 10 months. And so I retreated back into my office and just kind of let all that out for a few minutes and they all came in and consoled me. But, you know, that that moment t- kind of caught me by surprise that there was so much in there to come out.
0: The whole family was in tears.
10: It's just a relief to know that you've gotten to that point, um, because in vaccine development, there is a thousand choices to make, a thousand decisions, and a thousand ways to fail. And and you know most of these kind of development projects don't don't turn out, and and to, to get through all the way to get an answer that said it worked and it even worked better than you expected, uh, that was quite a quite a moment.
12: Yeah, I wasn't expecting to be emotional at all. I for sure wasn't expecting to be cry- crying happy tears for Pfizer. That's for sure. <laughs>
0: What kind of a cry was it? There are, like, lots of different kinds of cries. Right? <laughs> okay, so
12: if my families or if my siblings or my friends are listening to this, first of all, they're like, okay, yeah, right, you haven't cried this entire year. You cry all the time. So I'm a huge crybaby, and my cries are ugly. It was um, a cry you might expect to, like, have if you won the lottery. I don't even know if my family even today understands what just happened um, with me over the last year. If I were to call them about 90% efficacy results, they'd be like, okay, what's that? I actually still haven't communicated with my family about the efficacy results at all. I talk to them all the time. I just talked to my dad this morning about fixing a dishwasher in my rental property. So I talk to them all the time, but I, I don't know.
11: <laughs> yeah, it feels, oh God, it, it's actually working now. So it's really going to uh, save a lot of people. So I think I'm proud of it and uh, uh, it's great.
0: Like that little thing you made might yeah. like fix the global economy. It could save like millions of lives. It could help, you know, everything get back to normal. Like that little thing.
11: Yeah, that's what I hope. Yeah.
0: What do your parents say?
11: My parents actually they don't know what I was doing. They just know, oh, you developed a vaccine. That's great. <laughs> that's their thinking. They don't know how much contribution I did. Yeah, actually they yeah. My mom got stroke several years ago. She may, she may never know what I was, what I'm doing now, so.
0: I'm sorry about your mom.
11: Uh, yeah, I'm a little sad about that. Uh, but he has encouraged a lot uh, in the past. Yeah, I will always remember those things. Yeah.
0: It can be hard, I think, when you're in deep with something complicated, to explain that thing to someone on the outside particularly with science. There's this version that often makes it out into the world of a single person having a clear dramatic breakthrough. Jonah Salk with the polio vaccine. The Nobel Prize is always given to one or a few people. But a lot of science isn't like that. I think most of it isn't. When I asked Jason McClellan, the other scientist in this story, about his contribution to this, he started listing names. All the people whose work went before or whose ideas they adapted. Kizmikia, when she gives talks, her last slides are just lists of names. It's never just one person pushing the rock up a hill. David
1: Kestbaum, is senior editor of our show. The NIH Moderna vaccine protected 94% of the people who got it in clinical trial. It was just this week approved for emergency use. The government has arranged to purchase 200 million doses.
8: One foot in
2: front of the other foot, in front of the one foot, in front of the other foot, in front of the one foot, in front of the other foot, in front of the one
1: our program is produced today by Lily Sullivan. The people who put our show together today include Dana Chivas, Aviva Kornfeld, Nor Gill, Hilary Elkins, Damian Graves, Seth Lynn, Mickey Meeks, Doan Nelson, Catherine Raimondo, Nadia Raymond, Robin and Alyssa Ship. Christopher Sotala, Matt Tierney, Julie Whitaker, and Diane Wu. Our managing editors, Sarah Abdurahman. Our senior editors, David Kestenbaum. Our executive editor, Manuel Berry. Special thanks today to Derek Lowe, Daniel Patterson, Pedro Marone, Aiden Luna, Chuck Ramirez, Ryan Mendoza, Jen Rosas, J.B. Bunton, Thea Pemsey, Miguel Diaz, Gilbert Mendoza, Francisco Mario, Forrest Lamp, John Clearwater and Christina Crawford. Our website, where we set up a special page to note our show's 25th year on the air with a list of favorite shows from over the years, and I've written little blurbs explaining why each of the shows made the list, plus award-winning shows and spin-off shows. That's thisamericanlife.org slash 25 years. Again, thisamericanlife.org slash 25 years. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the public radio exchange, Thanks, as always, to program's co-founder, Mr. Tori Malatia. You know, we were arguing over the greatest daytime TV talk shows of all time. I, personally, have always been a fan of Oprah. Tori disagreed. The view is great, you know? I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life.